We look into the gut biome of the honeybee and ask, what all is in there? And how does it help the bee grow? From SDPB Radio, it's Friday, May 26th, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, more honeybee science that explores the role of bacteria in the bee's gut. Then we head to Vermilion for a look at how tribal members are targeted for identity theft. And we'll learn about a free legal clinic that helps people fight back against fraud. Darren Claybo is with us for a look at this year's wildfire outlook. How will the rains of June impact the intensity of July and August in the hills? Plus, Fresh Tracks brings you an updated look at the Mongolian folk metal band The Who. That's H-U, and it's later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh, here in the moment. The need for behavioral health services in South Dakota is increasing. Regional services are key to meeting those needs. Today, we're looking at Lewis and Clark Behavioral Health Services in Yankton. Nikki Gronley is with me in STPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. She is South Dakota State Director for USDA Rural Development. Nikki, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Lori. And joining us on the phone, Dr. Tom Stanage from Lewis and Clark Behavioral Health. Dr. Stanage, welcome. Good afternoon, and, and also thanks for having me, Lori. Let's start with you, Dr. Stanage, and tell us uh, what Lewis and Clark Behavioral Health is now and how you're seeing the need increase, and then we'll bring Nikki in to talk about uh, USDA Rural Development's assistance with that. But what, what, what do the facilities look like now? Yeah, so, so Lewis and Clark Behavioral Health Services is a, is a community behavioral health provider, and, and we provide um, both mental health and substance use um, treatment um, services, both inpatient and outpatient. And um, probably one of the things that, that distinguishes us from other providers is we provide um, care for individuals regardless of their in- inability to um, pay for services. Our, our service area is, primary service area is the seven counties in southeastern South Dakota. However, we do have a statewide reach. Um, last fiscal year, we served um, individuals from 44 out of the 66 counties in South Dakota. And, and you know, we're seeing just a tremendous need for behavioral health services, um, just our crisis care services um, that require individuals who require of face-to-face contact, um, and, and that can occur anytime during the day, has increased about 30% from pre-pandemic to now. So we're just really seeing a tremendous need for behavioral health services. Yeah. Um, Nikki Gronley, this is not an, a new uh, relationship because we can go back a few years and talk about some of the funding and how it's all coming together to break ground on a new facility in the coming days. Tell us a little bit about where USD Rural Development comes in. So with rural development, we always have our uh, community facilities program, which does loans for important rural facilities like uh, health care, fire departments, those vital type uh, organizations within rural communities. So that's something that is not new, and we've done that for years. One unique part of this program is under the American Rescue Plan, we receive dollars to be able to do grants. And um, 
you know, those grant dollars uh, are able to help a facility like this go further, do more. And so we do have a million dollars in grant dollars that is part of this program. Yeah. Tell me a little bit, Dr. Stanage, about how that money will be used. Yeah. So, Lori, right now, Lewis and Clark Behavioral Health Services operates out of four different locations in Yankton and um, one of those is one of those locations is a converted dorm. Uh, believe it or not, we have office space in the basement of the territorial capital um, in Yankton, and, and we've struggled with issues regarding uh, ability, um, safety, all of those with our existing facilities, and then just also the the demand for. Um, increased services. Um, we're part of the regionalization of behavioral health crisis care services. And so that was a, a, a huge um, need for us to have a space that could facilitate um, that kind of expansion. So um, we're, we're just really thrilled that we were able to put all of that together, um, um, make some major changes in terms of our our current space and then be able to to provide the additional regional um, behavioral health services. Yeah, Nikki, um, you have to make choices about where money goes, about where federal dollars go. Why is this project worth investing in? Well, you know, for me, this is one of the most exciting ones that have come across our, our desks there at Rural Development. We all know that there is a mental health crisis going on. It is nationwide and in South Dakota. We're seeing, you know, things like our number one uh, cause of death for 10 to 29-year-olds in South Dakota is suicide. This facility is so needed, modernizing it and giving them the tools that they need to do this work is vital to South Dakota. So we're so excited to, to be involved in this one, be able to help and know that we're going to affect a large number of South Dakotans for the better. Yeah, the difference between using a facility in the territorial capital historic space versus a new facility with, uh, you know, a COVID in mind, sort of some of the things that we learned during a pandemic and that, that construction. Groundbreaking is Wednesday, May 31st. Dr. Stanage, when do you anticipate the project being open or like what's the next phase of this once the groundbreaking occurs? Well, certainly construction um, will begin shortly thereafter, and we're looking at an 18-month, uh, perhaps up to two-year timeline for completion. And, you know, in the meantime, we're, we're making do with the, with the space that we have. Um, if, if I could, Lori, mm -hmm. um, I just I, I need to talk a little bit about the support that we've had for this project. Do we have a minute? Yes, please. For that, um, the the support has just been humbling, and certainly um, USDA Rural Development and the the state staff have been tremendous partners throughout this project. And you know, obviously, it wouldn't have happened without that support. Um, also, the the state of South Dakota, particularly the staff um, from the Department of, of uh, Social Services, the the behavioral health staff there, again. Um, you know, I have to express my appreciation for the state's vision in terms of, of providing 
some regionalization of care so services can occur uh, closer to people's homes. And then City of Yankton donated land. Um, South Dakota National Guard um, is providing an easement so we can share um, an access road. Um, just, just been a tremendous amount of support, and, and, and the support has been truly humbling. Yeah. What does that mean for you going forward when the facility is up and you're bringing patients in and your staff is having some of those really hard days that happen in a behavioral health facility? Will you look back at all the people who made this happen and, um, and carry that forward with you? I, I sure hope to, um, that, um, um, I'm, I'm, uh, probably uh, entering the, the twilight of my career. And so I, I hope that the people that follow me really remember that support and, and are humbled by it. And, you know, again, Yankton's been a great for taking care of, of, of both people who have um, behavioral health problems and, and also taking care of those who, who take care of, of others. So I, I certainly see that going forward. Nikki, we've talked about this before with the way people in South Dakota, especially in rural communities, pull together to create everything from a stop sign to a, you know, multi-million dollar behavioral health facility. You have to have some optimism along with the frustrations and the, the difficulty of doing this kind of work. But what do you see when you get in your car and visit communities about how people pull together to make complicated projects happen? You know, really in the last couple of weeks, I've been in uh, meetings from housing to economic development, and there is a lot of positive energy out there. There's a lot of creative solutions out there. And, you know, you always think about um, uh, maybe some of the stress that we see when you talk about social media, the news. Right. But when you're out there on the road and you're sitting in a room of city leaders, county leaders, and they're talking about creative ideas, ways to make things happen, um, it's, it's outstanding. It's heartwarming. I love the work I do. I get to leave those meetings and just feel so good about what's happening in rural South Dakota. Yeah. And I really feel a rural revitalization right now in this post-COVID world. Yeah, let's talk more about that in the future. Nikki Granley is South Dakota State Director for USDA Rural Development. Dr. Tom Stanage is from Lewis and Clark Behavioral Health. Dr. Stanage, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Lori. Nikki, thanks again. We'll see you next time. Thanks. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, there is a whole secret world inside of you. It's inside of you, your family, your dog, birds, deer, butterfly, every living organism in the world. Yes, we're talking about gut microbiomes. <clears throat> All right, so... That is exactly what Dr. Kayla Miller researchers. She is an assistant professor of biology at Dakota Wesleyan University in Mitchell, and she's with me now in SDPB's Kirby Family Studios in Sioux Falls. Welcome. Thanks for being here. 
Thanks so much for having me. My grandfather was a graduate of Dakota West. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> and I, I know having all those bacteria inside you is very shocking, but I, yeah, you got me, your I, got, I got verklempt for a minute. <laughs> I had to cough just thinking about this all there. But uh, you're thinking about what, what it looks like inside a honeybee. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your research and how you got interested in this. Yeah. So I'm really interested in bacteria overall. I'm a microbiologist and thinking about how these really tiny organisms can have a really big impact on the organisms that they live with. And so I'm interested in it inside the honeybee gut for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, they're super cute. Um, <laughs> so they're fun to research. Um, gives me great, you know, chances to be on the radio and talk about them. Right. <laughs> but also that their gut microbiome is really simple and consistent. So what I mean by that is that it's simple. Uh, they only have about 10 species of bacteria in their gut. Uh, you have around 1,000, so much more complex. And then consistent, you know, they eat the same thing every day, honey and pollen. <laughs> every morning, noon, night, honey and pollen, that's it. They don't go grab a pizza or have a steak the next night. So that keeps their gut microbiome and the species in there about the same all the, all the, throughout their life. How many different kinds of bees are there? And like, tell me about the honeybee and how it's different from another species. Yeah, so there are about three subspecies of honeybees okay. um, that we have in in America, and they are they are uh, in, from another. They're introduced from Europe, um, and then we have about over three hundred native bees as well in South Dakota. But my research right now is just on the the honeybee. How did you get interested in that? Other than, I mean, what was your first like up close encounter with a honeybee? <laughs> uh, yeah, I started during my PhD working with them. Okay. So we had hives there, and um, just you know, they're charismatic. They're fun to hang out with. So. Yeah, and incredibly vulnerable to various agricultural pesticides, uh, wildfire smoke, climate change. How at risk is the honeybee? So the honeybee itself is not really at risk at all. So honeybees are sort of like a domesticated animal, sort of like pigs or chickens or cattle. So okay. they're going to be okay. Uh, <laughs> colony collapse disorder is definitely a thing. There's a lot of things involved with it, like you mentioned. Um, however, you know, they're not going to go extinct anytime soon. Um, it's devastating for, you know, commercial beekeepers or, or hobby beekeepers if they lose a hive. Um, but they'll be fine. Uh, it's more about our native bee species that we need to be a little bit more worried about. Okay. All right. So let's talk a little bit about how you look inside of the gut and what you find, and then we'll move into why it matters to the bee and with weight gain, mm -hmm. et cetera. How do you do this research? <laughs> so I'm interested, as you said, in the gut microbiome of honeybees. So the first thing we do is actually take out that gut from the honeybee. And it's actually pretty easy. Uh, you can actually just pull on their stinger, and that will remove the whole intestinal tract. Um, this is actually why they die when they sting you as well. Um, and then once we've done that... Okay, you know. wait. So when they sting you and leave the stinger in you, are they also leaving their intestinal tract, or is it because it's separated? It's because it's separated. As okay. they fly away, um, kind of comes apart. <laughs> Yeah, so um, then I'm I, processing. <laughs> I don't want to be too graphic. I'm but, processing yeah. that scientific knowledge right now, which I'm just learning for the yeah, first time. If, if okay. you Google it, there's some really cool pictures people have taken as the bee kind of flies away, so you can see that. <sighs> yeah, so then we then we grow the bacteria in the lab, so we can grow them on like auger plates, little petri dishes you've seen. Um, so you have to open it up, or you pull the stinger out and then you open it up. Yep, and so we can grind up that just that whole gut. Okay and put that on these auger plates and have them grow. Wow. A lot of what we do is also sequencing. So just taking mm -hmm. their DNA or, you know, the information they have inside them and, and sequencing that and figuring out um, what type of bacteria are in the gut. 
And did you already know what some of it, what you were going to find? Like, where is this research in the, in the continuum of research? How does your work fit in? Yeah. So like I said, their gut microbiome is really um, simple and consistent. So it is the same things that we've seen across the country. And we knew that before I started my PhD. Yeah. Uh, what I focused in on was actually thinking about how these bacteria are interacting with one another inside the gut and what those implications can have for the health of the bee. And this is about growth of the bee, how big it's going to get, how it grows, pacing, what what sort of interactions are influencing the bee's development, is, if that's yeah. the right word. Yeah, we're not quite sure on the development side yet, but helping with like metabolism and nutrition and probably an, an immune system role as well. Um, so those are some things that we already know that they're involved with inside the gut. What surprised you about your research so far? What were you able to take in this paper that you've published to other scientists to say, well, now we also know this, and this can help other people with their next research? Yeah, so I was looking at uh, communication molecules inside the gut and first showed them inside the honeybee. So that's kind of a new thing that we're looking into and trying to figure out what are those signals telling other bacteria to do and, and what are those signals going to do um, changing the bacterial community and how that might impact the honeybee. Yeah. Okay, so the simplicity and the consistency of the honeybee makes it ideal for study. Yeah. How do you apply that to <laughs> more complicated organisms? Yeah, so getting at the really nitty-gritty of how simple, you know, pairs of bacteria or even, again, the small, like, 10 species um, ecosystem interacts can give us clues to how some more of these more complex organisms and uh, the microbes that live in, such as, like, us, you know, this very complex community, kind of understanding it on a smaller scale first, and mm -hmm. then we'll be able to kind of use that to guide us in our future more complex research. Is machine learning or AI helping <laughs> you in your research? Are there ways to apply new technology to, you know, uh, accelerate your your knowledge i'm sure there is i uh, <laughs> i'm not doing it but yeah that's a, a great yeah. idea and i think you know there's a lot of fear about ai but i think it's going to be a lot of exciting possibilities as well yeah so you spend a lot of time at the microscope tell, uh, tell me about, about like what your lab <laughs> is like what yeah what are you spending your day yeah doing? a yeah. lot of it is just moving clear liquids around from little tubes to little tubes <laughs> Yeah. So um, while we do grow a lot of the bacteria in the lab, uh, like I said, a lot of the stuff I do is with the DNA itself. And, you know, DNA is usually, like I said, in a clear liquid, and we kind of move that around and manipulate that. Um, but, yeah, a lot of Petri dishes and little culture plates and growing bacteria and, and looking at how things change. I have no imaginative concept right now of what a honeybee's DNA might look like as far as pattern or... Yeah, it's a diagram. That, what can you tell me about that? Yeah, so we actually look at just the bacterial DNA inside the honeybee gut. Okay. And so we, we look at a right. specific sequence uh, that helps us identify the different bacteria that are there. And this part of the DNA that we look at has kind of a clover leaf structure, uh, and it's really helpful for us using that to help identify the species. I think that's so fascinating. All right, Dr. Kayla Miller with Dakota Wesleyan University. She has bees on her notebook and bees <laughs> dangling on earrings from her ears, and she's all in with this research. So thank you very much, Dr. Miller, for stopping by. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Well, a wave of scams and thefts are targeting Native Americans, including in South Dakota. The Federal Tax Clinic at the University of South Dakota's Knutson School of Law 
has helped many of the victims of a particular tax fraud scam. Becky Stavish is director of the tax clinic and joins me by phone to talk about the scam, what to watch out for, and how to get help. Becky, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. I'm happy to be here. Let's start by talking a little bit about how widespread fraud is right now that is targeting Native Americans. How big is the problem? It's pretty bad. It's bad enough that the IRS has recognized this as one of their top priorities. Are there different kinds of frauds that we're seeing? Yes, absolutely. Some of the different frauds are related to tax return filings. Some are related to employment filings. So, for example, if you have a difficulty filing your tax return electronically or through e-file because it says you're using a duplicate Social Security number, that's what we would consider a tax return filing fraud. However, if you get a letter from the IRS telling you that you didn't report the income in their records, that's employment-related identity theft. Can you give us an idea of how often this goes unreported? Oh, gosh. It's hard to estimate because right now the two biggest groups that are actually victims of identity theft are the very young, so those who are likely younger than 18 and who don't have a tax return filing obligation, and our senior citizens because the seniors normally don't need to file a tax return once they've retired. Mm. But it's definitely in the tens of thousands, and it is affecting us right here in South Dakota. We have seen the cases coming into our clinic. What happens if nothing is done? How severe can the consequences be? Well, they can be pretty severe. Um, If you're entitled to a tax refund, you won't get your refund if it's not addressed. Likewise, if you receive any type of benefit or supplemental assistance, those payments could be reduced because the government will receive a report that someone else has earnings or filings under your Social Security number. Mm. Likewise, you might get a default judgment against you in identity theft issues outside of the tax world. So it's something if you suspect you may be a victim of, you should work on getting it resolved pretty quickly. Are there reasons that you're aware of that Native Americans or reservation communities or tribal members are targeted? That's a good question, and unfortunately, I don't have an answer for that. Tell us a little bit about the legal clinic at the University of South Dakota and why and how that is part of potential solutions helping people get assistance? Sure, absolutely. Well, as you mentioned, we are a part of the the law school clinic community. We work with the University of South Dakota directly out of the law school in Vermilion. Our law students are supervised by myself, and I'm an attorney. We never charge a fee for the clients who qualify for services. Our services can include many different topics including audit letter, letters, tax credit denials, or dependent denials on your tax return, 
missing refunds, tax bills you can't afford to pay, and all the way up to the tax court. We also do presentations to teach folks about taxes and tax returns, and it's a core part of our mission to represent and educate taxpayers. We can help with the identity theft issues because sometimes the process is challenging to fill out the, the forms and to supply the necessary proof to the IRS. We also recognize that not everyone has access to the internet or lives near a taxpayer advocate center. Um, so we can actually help with that in our office and we can help mail you the documents and take you step by step to file the right form. What is this like for students? What's in it for their learning? Sure. Well, students are taught for two semesters how to respond to clients' needs and what they need to do to solve legal issues that clients are facing. They receive educational training as well as support from our staff, and they are given the responsibility and joy of learning what it's like to work with clients one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. I, of course, supervise their work, and I'm always happy to help out when they have problems, but it's a great learning experience that allows students to work with people as opposed to just studying from a book, which hmm. only teaches you so much about practicing law. Right. Do you have a lot of enthusiasm from the students who are participating? We do. I think overall, a lot of the students come to the clinic because they want to help people. And because it's a, a group of students who understand that we don't charge for our services, there's a certain mentality amongst the, the group to really work together to make their community a stronger and better place through this little type of service. Yeah. What do you hope they will take with them as licensed attorneys in the future about that pro bono work? I think the most important lesson that they can take from the clinic is that sometimes we need to help people in our community even if they can't afford our legal services. Everyone in our community is entitled to fair and zealous advocacy in front of the IRS. And if we can help them with that, that's just one way to get there. Yeah. They don't have to love tax, but I want them to understand how important it is to help people in their community. Yeah. Was there a professor who invited you into that way of thinking about your role as a lawyer in South Dakota? There was. Um, and, you know, there were a couple of folks that I've collaborated with at the University of South Dakota. And then even when I was a law student. Um, but the biggest influence I received was from the clients themselves. Mm their message and their desire to do the right thing, but asking for a little bit of help was the perfect combination to solve just one tiny little problem in my community. And I really enjoy that. Yeah. Well, Becky Stavish is director of the Federal Tax Clinic at the University of South Dakota's Knudsen School of Law. It has been a delight to talk to you. We had a little delay between our conversations. You did great, uh, so thank you for our, your patience on that, and we really appreciate your time. Come back again.
Excellent. Thank you so much. And I appreciate you guys so much. Um, I look forward to chatting with you soon. Yep. We'll see you later. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, early air quality concerns from Canadian wildfires may have you uneasily watching for wildfire warnings in South Dakota. After a winter full of blizzards, will we see a summer full of fire? Our state fire meteorologist is joining the show again to talk about his concerns and the outlook. We'll also dive into how South Dakotans can prevent fire with their own participation. And in addition to being our state fire meteorologist, Dr. Darren Claybo is an assistant professor of practice at South Dakota Mines, and he's with me now in SDPB's Black Hill Surgical Hospital studio in Rapid City. Darren, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me once again. It's always nice. I remember, it's been quite a few years now, when I didn't know we had a state fire meteorologist, and I'm guessing there are some newcomers to the state. Tell people what you do. Well, I really, uh, I, I work to kind of um, uh, bring attention to wildfires across South Dakota. And of course, I'm a, I'm a fire meteorologist, which means that I'm always looking at the weather conditions that uh, lead to wildfires. And then if there are ongoing wildfires, I can help firefighters on the ground kind of predict the fire behavior by looking at weather, uh, wind, temperature, relative humidity to, to kind of um, help them, you know, with the efficiency of their operations and of course being safe while they're out there. Yeah. Well, we had a weird winter. I don't know that there's any other way to say it. So how did this winter impact uh, the drought situation, for example? Wow, it, it was a bizarre winter <laughs> for sure. Uh, you know, last fall, uh, last year was was actually, precipitation-wise, last year wasn't too bad, but it was such a warm year where we really dried everything out. And coming into the winter, uh, you know, uh, October, November last year, it was it was dry. And then we had kind of these on and off blizzards. Some areas of the state saw a lot of moisture. Other areas didn't. Uh, and then we kind of we got through the winter, and then, what was it, the 5th of April hit, and it just dried out. We saw mm. 35, 37 days uh, with, really without rain across much of the state. And so overall, the winter saw uh, beneficial precipitation. You know, if you look at the U.S. drought monitor from last fall to the U.S. drought monitor today, you know, we're one to three categories improved from where we are. So the moisture definitely helped. Uh, we're still a little bit behind, you know, over the past 12 to 15 months. Uh, but we could use some beneficial spring moisture to really kick up, uh, kick off green up, and uh, and hopefully mitigate some fire danger as we progress into the summer months. So help people understand what happens when the rains come right now. That has an impact on a lot, including that growth. Explain oh. how the ad and the anatomy of rain, <laughs> especially in the Black Hills. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, rain, obviously this time of the year, uh, May is is one of our two wettest months, May and June are our wettest months. This time of the year, every week, we should be picking up about three quarters of an inch of rain. That's just on average. And so if we're seeing above that, you know, it's obviously beneficial uh, to, to some things. It could cause flooding issues. But if we see below that, then we really start to set ourselves behind. If we look at the months of April, May, June, and July, we get about half of our annual precip in those four months. And so this is a big time of the year uh, to get Get all that precipitation. So the rain comes, uh, we kind of get out of the brown, dreary side of, of spring, uh, and we get all this green up. Green up's a great thing. We want to see that live fuel moisture, that good herbaceous growth. But if we grow too much grass, obviously, if that dries out in the summer months, uh, it can be susceptible to burning. So we're watching that aspect of it as well. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the outlook for summer 
temperature-wise, precipitation-wise, look ahead a little bit and give us uh, your crystal ball, which is your scientific crystal ball. Yeah. Sure. You know, the, the peak summer fire season really goes from, say, the beginning of July through the Labor Day weekend. Uh, and so it's about a two-and-a-half-month period when we see elevated wildfire activity across really central and western South Dakota. And it's really the precipitation we get in May and June that is going to dictate our overall fire potential in July and August. June is really the make-it-or-break-it month. If we get below-average precipitation during the month of June, I'm, I'm really going to start hedging my bets towards more wildfire activity. Uh, conversely, if we get above-average precip, uh, we should have less wildfires when it comes to July and August. Uh, we haven't reached June yet, but what does June look like? Right now, it's it's tr tending or trending, excuse me, towards uh, at least warmer than average conditions uh, with some signals pointing towards just kind of average precipitation. And average precipitation is a good thing, of course, but with enhanced temperatures like we saw last year, uh, that can still dry things out. Yeah. Well, you often join us throughout the summer for talks about prevention when things, especially when things are urgent. But let's talk prevention overall. If you're a homeowner, for example, in the Black Hills, what are some of the things that you can do to help mitigate or prepare for wildfire season on your property? Wow, May is a wonderful time for preparation. Uh, temperatures are awesome outside. The grass is green. It's a beautiful time to be outside. And so if you're outside, you know, really take care of your own property. Be responsible and ensure that you don't have anything on your property that could, one, cause a wildfire, be an ignition source. Uh, if you have a campfire ring, just make sure that it's up to uh, our specifications through South Dakota Wildland Fire. Uh, you know, really just pay attention to what you have on your landscape. Thin the brushes. Uh, you know, cedar trees or juniper trees growing up next to your house, and make sure they're kind of clean. Uh, the bases of them aren't necessarily on the ground. Uh, wood piles away from your house. Uh, just kind of these proactive things that we can do to ensure that if there is a fire that may impact your property, that it, it's not going to have any real detrimental effects. And for our visitors driving across the state, spending some recreational time in the hills, what do they need to know? Well, welcome to South Dakota, to our <laughs> visitors, uh, first of all. And really just recognize that our state is alive with fire. Fire is a natural part of the ecosystem out here, but we don't want to be the cause of it. So watch your ignition sources. Just be responsible. Pay attention to what you're doing. Recognize where you're parking, where you're recreating, that all of these places are susceptible to wildfires, and just don't be that cause of ignition. Yeah. What's our warning system like? What's our response like for wildfires when they do start? Uh, we have wonderful response uh, across the state. You know, if we look at just western South Dakota, we have uh, all of our interagency partners. So it's not only South Dakota Wildland Fire, it's the U.S. Forest Service, it's the Bureau of Land Management, um, our partners with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, Fish and Wildlife. And the big players, though, are our local VFDs, our local volunteer fire departments. Those are the ones that are really kind of doing the day-to-day -day work to ensure that, uh, you know, the fires aren't spreading and to ensure that the messaging is getting out. So it's, it's really an interagency partnership that we have in the area, which is wonderful. We all work wonderfully together. Uh, we're always communicating. As a matter of fact, I'm part of a, a, a training program next week. It's an interagency training program. We'll be talking a little bit about fire weather. Uh, so, yeah, if there is a fire, it gets called in. Uh, we respond with the, the closest possible resources to that fire uh, to extinguish it as quickly and as safely as we can. How is technology changing your job right now and the response time? Wow. Uh, technology is 
is <laughs> exponentially changing. Yeah. You know, we can actually detect wildfires from geostationary satellites that are orbiting like 22,500 miles above the surface, which blows my mind. It's incredible. <laughs> but we can see fires, you know, as small as an acre or two. And if they're out in like the wilderness area or places where there aren't people to report them, uh, we can use those tools to send resources uh, very quickly. It's it's fascinating and in the it's changing so incredibly quickly that's actually hard to keep up on. Yeah. Is there a, a tool that you wish you had that you think, well, I just it, once this gets established, this is going to change the game in the way I do my job? You know, as a meteorologist, we have lots of data, but if I could have more, I would be very, very happy. You know, if you look at the network of weather stations that we have across the hills, it's good, it's sufficient, but I could always use more. Yeah. Dr. Clabo, are most wildfires started by lightning strikes or by human actions? What What do you see from, you know, just a career in this, what's your, what's your gut tell you? Uh, nationwide, it's really 90% humans, 10% uh, natural causes. But if we look at like the Black Hills National Forest itself, in the months of June, July, August, and September, actually more than 50% of our fires are actually started by lightning. Uh, so let's really focus on, you know, the 40 to 50% that are caused by humans, and let's try to mitigate those ignitions. Yeah. You mentioned the Bureau of Land Management and the U.S. Forest Service. Uh, clearly, the Black Hills and, um, you know, timber collection has changed. We look at other communities, California, Canada, look at their massive wildfires, and we worry. And, of course, not everybody agrees on what should be done. You know, cut more trees, cut fewer trees. How is this playing out in your work? You know, we really have to look at it as a balance of all of these things. Uh, the timber industry definitely has a place. Prescribed fire definitely has a place. You know, and, and, and wildfires definitely have those their place as well. I mean, these ecosystems developed, evolved, and grew up with wildfire present. We cannot take it out and expect to see the same forest uh, day in and day out. If we take fire out of the ecosystem... It, it changes the fundamental processes. And, you know, I like to say that wildfire is just as important to a forest as the trees are. So we need fire in there, but of course we have to balance that with the needs that we have as humans, uh, whether that be timber, whether that be recreation, mining, all of these things. It's, it's a tough balance to achieve, but I think that we're, we're getting closer to achieving that balance. Yeah. When you look at climate change globally and how it might impact the forest, do we have a forest 200 years ago? 200 years from now, I mean? It, it is changing. We're going to have a forest. There will be ponderosa pine trees in the Black Hills uh, at least 20 to 50 years from now. Uh, there's a lot of things going on that are, that are changing the landscape, and it's not just climate change. Uh, yes, globally we are getting warmer. Uh, in South Dakota we are getting warmer. Um, it's not as extreme as, say, the warmth that California, the trends in warmth that California or coastal areas are seeing. But we're seeing it. And you're going to start to see migrations of species that are moving farther north or that are going farther, say, uphill. It's called the bioclimatic law. If you go farther north, it's like going up the side of a mountain. Uh, and so I think we're going to start to see some of these slower species migrations. But I definitely think we're going to have a, ponder a robust ponderosa pine forest in the Black Hills for the foreseeable future. Yeah. We've got about a minute left, and now I just have to ask you what kind of species. <laughs> like, who's coming? <laughs> 
Who's coming? That's a great question. Uh, that is a great question. I think, you know, for the Black Hills, it, it might be more of a uh, conversion of timber to prairie. Uh, you know, it, mm. it, I don't. I want. On a, I don't want to say this, but it might more look more like a western Nebraska or a western Kansas in our area. A little bit more arid, a little bit more grasslands. Uh, you know, the trees might have an, a little bit tougher time finding some water out here. Uh, you know, I'm not making any dire predictions, right. but you know, that's that's the kind of changes that we're seeing. Is that the northern Great Plains might start looking more like the central Great Plains, at least on on you know this side of the state. Fascinating stuff. Dr. Darren Claybo is our state fire meteorologist. He also teaches at South Dakota Mines, and uh, you'll hear his voice several times throughout the summer because this is when we usually bother him for the latest update and those safety messages, which we really try to get out on the air all summer long. Darren, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. I appreciate it as well, and thanks again for having me on. Today's Fresh Tracks highlights Sturgis native David Hersrud's lifelong dedication to music discovery. He and SDPB's Larry Rohr talk about updated tracks from The Who and the latest from rock band Greta Van Fleet. They'll also talk about a blues album that doubles as a charity fundraiser. Take a listen. I love it when I look at the notes we're going to talk about and you use the words unique and interesting. And uh, let's make that the starting point. What, what are we going to have a look at this week that's unique and interesting? First up is a song by the Mongolian folk heavy metal band, The Who. This is Mongol. is still one of my favorite all-time songs, and it will probably remain so for, for years to come. We The band is fast becoming a major concert draw. They record only in their native Mongolian tongue using traditional Mongolian throat singing. Two things, because you're using traditional instruments, there's a rhythm track that's different than you would typically find, heavy metal or not, but, but really sets this apart. And then, of course, the throat singing and the instruments. But what I really like about what you picked out are the guest singers and how well they fit. It's, it's wonderful. They took the song and kind of redid it, and they featured uh, William Duvall, who's lead singer for Alice in Chains. And if this doesn't boost the band's musical profile, I don't know what will. Mm, yeah. And apparently they've, they, they've done this a couple of times. In fact, they've got a new album, or a new song. Uh, they've done a remix of Black Thunder, featuring Daniel Laskowitz of uh, Bad Wolves and Serge Tankian of System of a Down. It's the Who. Another interesting uh, pair, and boy, did they fit together well. Joe Bonamassa, but uh, the feature is on Mark 
Broussard. This is SOS 4, Blues for Your Soul. Mark Broussard. His musical style is described as Bayou Soul, which is kind of a mix of funk, blues, R&B, rock, uh, with just a dash of pop. Anyway, what I really appreciate about this guy is this is his fourth SOS album. What he does is when he puts these things together, he puts them out there. The money that, that, that comes in is earmarked for underprivileged youth. Joe Bonamassa, who's probably one of the greatest rock and blues guitarists in the world, oh, yeah. to help him out. The song that, that we're going to kind of feature here is a cover of Little Milton's That's What Love Will Make You Do. arrangement can be typical. Uh, some people can try to be creative with it, and it they shouldn't. Uh, but, <laughs> but at the same time, they Broussard and Bonamassa have hit on something here to make the old and familiar new and fresh. Uh, I think people need to check it out. You know, even before I, I looked through the notes and saw the word Led Zeppelin, I listened to Greta Van Fleet's cut that we have, and I was thinking, Led Zeppelin. And that's okay. Some things don't need to be redone, but this is really, really fresh. Starcatcher is the album. Tell us about Greta Van Fleet. I'm really impressed by this song, Meeting the Master. I have not been impressed with the stuff that they produced prior to this. Uh, they came out with a tremendous amount of press. They were called uh, initially the, the best band since Led Zeppelin, the band that will save rock and roll. Uh, their first album, yeah. From the Fires, was an EP that they released in 2017 and won the Grammy for the best rock album. The music is good, it just wasn't great and didn't seem to be living up to the hype. Well, there are some real vocal gymnastics taking place here. Then it leads you into the guitar gymnastics that follow it. It's just, it's a tremendous cut. Well, I, and it's the best thing that they've done. So I am, I am really looking forward to the new album when it comes out. This song, Beating the Masters, is any indication of what we're going to be hearing. Okay, so we've got a remix on a couple of cuts from The Who. Uh, Mark Broussard is raising some more money, and Joe Bonamassa is helping. We've got Greta Van Fleet's new album. But of those familiar names, we've got some, <laughs> some additional names to wrap up with this week. And people always enjoy finding strange names for bands. You know, I found out this week, in taking a look at some of the stuff that we came up with, we actually had a tie between a band called Santa Hate Shoe 
and another one called Nervous Cloud. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And the winner being selected by the group uh, was Nervous Cloud. I mean, I like Santa Hates You. Oh, yeah. But Nervous Cloud has a, a classic song called, and this is the title of the song, How to Get Murdered in a Made-for-TV Movie. <laughs> I think that kind of says it all. Yeah. I don't think we're going to have them on the ultimate list, but... Uh... We'll, we'll remember who they are. Absolutely. Thanks, David. Take care. Take care. There's like something on TV. And that is our show for today. We hope that it served you this Memorial Day weekend. We also thank all those who served and those who have been impacted by their loss. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening. Thank you.